you could do anything in the world. <laughs> and I think that uh, Ken was the first person to say that to me just uh-huh. by inviting me out here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But treating me like a That was his like an thing equal. all the time. For everybody to tell him, follow your bliss. Yeah. Uh, what be an, yourself. You'd be the star of your own movie. This particular chapter of this project is very important for me to get off my chest because it's a, a pivotal moment in my life that only happened because I said yes to going to a fish concert and chasing my muse. Yeah, a gift that your passion gave you. And this is, I'm really excited about this, this episode as well because this, uh, this story of yours is, 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 is something that's remarkable on many levels. I really do feel like this was the catalyst for this project, was mm. to finally talk about this Experience. I went to Darien Lake, New York, August 14th, 1997. Yeah, the end of summer tour 97 for the, the went, right? Yeah, like two months after I graduated high school. And I headed up there with a bunch of friends and I got the chance to meet and befriend author, counterculture icon, Mary Prankster, Ken Kesey. And that moment absolutely changed everything in my life. A lot of people met him that day. I can't speak for anybody else. But I took full advantage of the opportunity. We were hanging out in the parking lot, and a bunch of my friends went for a walk. And then they come back, and they go, uh, Ken Kesey's down there in the uh, further bus. Mm-hmm. They just pulled into the parking lot, and they seem to kind of be, like, weirdly nonchalant. Oh, yeah, the, yeah, just saying, like, this happens like, all the yeah, time. Ken Kesey's yeah, yeah, down there. Yeah. And I grabbed my girlfriend mm-hmm. and just sprinted. And I remember it being very hilly. Yeah, And we ran down to the bus and we watched him. They were backing the bus in and trying to figure out parking. And, and the door, the, the school bus door opens and Babs and all the pranksters come out. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? You know, fish and the Grateful Dead. Like, this is yeah, a weird. Worlds are colliding. I, I, I read Cuckoo's Nest that year, but I oh, knew wow. about Keezy because of the books that I read about the Grateful Dead, yeah. the Grateful Dead the family album, yeah. electrocuted acid yeah. test, but like all these Grateful Dead lore and mythology mm. and like the, the chronology of, uh, of, of the dead. There was always this guy with the painter's cap that seemed to be like the guy who was responsible for the fun. Yeah. I'm like, there's no way that Ken Kesey's on this bus. Like I started the, the, the me that was like, there's no way. Yeah. And the back of the, the, the emergency doors pop open. Out, out comes Kesey. And he's just this big, like barrel chested, mm-hmm. wrestling, just a big dude in painter's pants, yeah. a USA shirt, an Uncle Sam hat. And he kicks the doors open and goes, whoa, and just, like, gives this, You like, were right there for his entrance. And I was yeah. like, what the, f- my, this, like, I'm getting goosebumps now. <laughs> I mean, it blew me away. Wow. And it was one of those moments where, like, the rest of the parking lot went away, and it yep. was just, like, me and Keezy yeah. and my girlfriend. Wow. Yeah, the, I mean, the bus itself is a spectacle to see. I remember just standing out above all these other regular cars, like your own, with the beat-up piece no of bed. shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. That's wild. You were there, right, at the, right, right, right there. Right there, and he popped out, and yep. I was like, Whoa. And he was kind of like just this like psychedelic Santa Claus. Yeah. And he looked down and was like, hello. And, you know, I, he like shook my girlfriend's hand wow. and, and, and I shook his hand. And I was so nervous that, that the one thing I said, like a dipshit, I just read Cuckoo's Nest 
in high school just now. I just finished it, and he was like, "I expected much worse." When you said, "What a great," he goes, "What a great recommendation." <laughs> just like kind of like sarcastically. Now, not to give it away, but after talking to him a little bit, Cuckoo's Nest was like the one thing he didn't want to talk about. Oh, okay, because the the movie was a complete bastardization yeah. of oh. the book, mm-hmm. and he got screwed over pretty royally yeah. with finances and stuff yeah. like that on the whole thing. So. Um, yeah, for me to say that was kind of a little bit dumb. Yeah, it could have been worse, Mike. But, yeah, totally. <laughs> I could have been like, who's got my acid yeah, or something stupid. Yep. So for those of the people who don't know that's, that are listening, because I'm amazed at how many people don't know who Keezy yeah. is. In the early 60s, he was a graduate student at Stanford, and he volunteered for some mind expansion drug uh, testing that uh, turned out it was CIA-driven. Mm-hmm. But um, he went into the laboratories and was given a cup. Sometimes it had a placebo, sometimes it didn't. And when it didn't, uh, he was pretty, you know, he said he saw his whole life on the back of his eyelids and on the back of his forehead, the inside of his forehead. So he um, had to convince these doctors that he was sane still. Because when they gave the initial LSD jolts to people, they were like, whoa, we made these people insane. Yeah. They need to be locked up. And when he came down, he was like, I'm good. And then he went back in. And when he talked to the other people that did it, and he realized that uh, when he does get that dose, play it cool so they let you out into the real world. So he would be tripping and have to be like, I'm fine. And they'd be like, oh, you got the placebo. You're free to go. And he would go out in the world tripping on acid pretty much the first I mean, there were psychedelics all the way back mm. to the you know sure. prehistoric days, yeah. but he was you know running around Palo Alto and tripping balls. Yeah. Got a job working at the hospital. Babs tells an amazing story about this that maybe it would be better if he just shared this. Yeah. Okay. So and then uh, the whole thing ended, and at the same time, Kesey got a job at that same place as a aide, you know, in the VA hospital. And one day he was in there looking out. He was in this room and they had a window and you could watch them out in the day room there and there was a door over on the side there and he realized that was the office of the doctor who uh, ran the uh, the drug tests for him. Uh-huh. So he looked on the wall and he saw keys there and he went up and got a key and he f- checked it out and got in there and he wasn't snooping around and he opened a drawer in the uh, desk and uh, his eyes got big and his hair kind of stood up and his aura started bouncing off the room and all the lights were going and everything. He picks up this bottle and it's a bottle of 500 uh, hits of LSD from Sandoz Laboratories in Switzerland. So from there, now now here's this you know psychedelic Viking. Yep. That uh, he's got the goods. At he's this got point. the goods yeah. and he's ready to release it onto the to the world. Yeah. And um, these young guys, these. The, the Grateful Dead happened to be uh, playing at that time as the war, Warlocks. Mm-hmm. And they would throw these parties acid, called Acid Tests. Yeah. And Dead was the house band. Dead was the house band. Yeah. And if you watch any interview or any documentary about the Grateful Dead, they all talk about that being a pivotal moment where they learned how to like accept the unexpected mm-hmm. and let a song go let, in the midnight hour, uh, you know, go on after the last note and yeah. see where it takes them. And it kind of seems to me like Keezy indirectly was responsible for psychedelic improvisation yeah. because he gave dead, these yeah. guys the place and the freedom yep. to explore. And uh, you can learn a lot more about him at your neighborhood Wikipedia. 
I, I think that it hit me so hard to see him at Fish. Yeah. And I was just out of high school, and I was kind of really discovering Kerouac and Ginsburg and all the... I love that that's the type of person that you were getting starstruck by at the time. Like yeah. That was your hero, you he know? He was totally. Yeah. And, and, and you know what it was? It's like, it, it, the only other person would have been like Hunter Thompson or, you know, I mean, Kerouac was dead. So, I mean, really, it would have been Hunter or Kesey. Yeah. So, I run over, Ken Babs and all the other pranksters are there, and I go, uh, can I come on the bus? It's not the original. Yep. The original is... Yeah, where's that? That's... It's rusted over in his backyard, okay. and it's covered in moss, yeah. and it's where it should be. Yeah. Those guys think that it uh, belongs to, back in the land, wow. and uh, the Smithsonian wanted it, but Kesey said no. That, yep. They brought me onto the bus. I looked around. What's going on it's, on that bus? It's, it's, the, it's like the inside of all of our uh, lucid dreams when you <laughs> sleep. Everything's very... Uh, orange and green and purples and yellows and a lot of like uh just words like you know uh what with a question mark upside down but there's like a spiral in the you know and 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 all the seats and i walked in and right away i go where did garcia sit because i was just like so interested in like did jerry was he ever on the bus and this and that and then they told me well you know this is a um, this is number two, you know, and we made this one so we could do this trip. Uh, Kesey was doing readings, uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, all the way across the country up into Canada. Okay, yeah, I was curious exactly what landed them on lot. Like, this was a point that they, you know, were invited or they just kind of happened upon it, you know? Yeah, so actually Ken Babs tells me a little bit about that when I chatted with him this past summer. Uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame wanted the bus there for uh, on display. It was the celebration of the 60s. Uh, they had John Lennon's car, you know, and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. So uh, we uh, got us to go there. We had the bus shipped to Chicago on a flatbed uh, truck, and then we flew to Chicago and then drove to Cleveland, stopping in. Uh, we were in Chicago for a while. Kesey spoke there. And then we went to Cleveland and Columbus and... Uh, uh, finally, the Columbus, I can't remember what order, but both those places, but then at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But then he had this gig in uh, Toronto, so we left there to go there, and we just happened to go to that Fish concert. Uh, I Amazing. I don't know how that happened, because it was on the way. And then one of the Fish guys came in the bus and got us to come up on the stage. So they happened to just be driving by, the synchronicity so cool. of all of yeah, this. Yeah, absolutely. And they're like, well, we heard there's a fish concert, yeah. so let's go check it out. Yeah. And here they come, and like they literally, now now put yourself in their shoes, and like they pull in, and like right away, here's me, this nerdy fucking, you know? And people started to gather. I wasn't yeah. the only one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I gathered. It, it was a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I, but I'm like, yeah, you're back, fr- get you're back front in the row. line. I'm like, yeah. I need to, this is like weirdly <laughs> synchronistic. Yeah. You know, hung out for a little while. My girlfriend was pretty jazzed about it, too. And uh, I, I said hi and thank you and, you know, whatever. And Kesey goes, keep in touch. And he hands me a business card. Oh, shit. And it said, Intrepid Trips, Ken Kesey, Chief. And it, it had his email address. And um, he was handing them out all over the place. Now, at the time, those guys were working on movies. They were working on plays. They had a play called Twister which is actually what they performed later on that night when they went on stage with yeah. Fish. Oh, that was, what, oh, wow. That was their play, mm-hmm. and it was basically kind of a uh, horror version of The Wizard of Oz yeah, yep, yeah, it was with Frankenstein yep. and all that stuff. Yeah. So 
I go back over with a little bit of a skip in my step to the car and uh, my friends and everybody's kind of hanging out. Two of my friends at that moment decide they're not going into the show. So they sell their tickets and they just want to walk around the parking lot. What? They were just in it for the to hang, oh, okay. which is fine. They yeah. don't, no, you know, yeah. And they don't, they don't go anymore. Now they're yeah. into country music. Yep. We go into the show. It's a phenomenal show, phenomenal yep. venue. Mm-hmm. I mean, start to finish, that fish show without the Keezy experience yeah. was just a dynamite concert. Mm-hmm. There was a Tila in there. It's, I was just about to bring up the Tila. Yeah, there and was an inc- a lot of it, incredible uh, stuff. It culminated to um, many of us, mine, uh, and just many other people I know, the, the first camel walk. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that came out of what you know, you're about to describe, but that was a really, really special yeah. for me. Yeah. So there were a lot of, um, you know, for the non-fish, uh, you know, the people that are maybe new to the, the, the folklore of it all and the obsession that we've spoken so much about, this was a show chock full of surprises. Mm. And they started a song, Colonel Forbin's Ascent, which is a rarity. And everyone's always very excited to see it. And like you said, Mike, this was the end of a long summer of craziness. Mm-hmm. And uh, for them to play that then was pretty wild. And normally that goes into a narrative that Trey, you know, uh, kind of takes the lead and tells a story and the, the band improvises behind him. Uh, but Trey hands it over to Ken, Uncle Sam, Bozo, Easy, yeah, Keezy. Colonel Forbin. He's a character in that, that song. And he... he in his narration, found uh, Uncle Sam Bozo Easy. Easy Keezy. Yeah. So this is now all bets are off. Ken Keezy's on stage with Fish. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows what the fuck's going on. Some people are losing it. It was super surreal. Yeah. It it's was... like that he was in the parking lot. And then mm-hmm. you see some people going like, I told you he was in the parking yeah. lot. Yeah. Keezy breaks into this story. Mm-hmm. About his heart is sad that for two long years no one has heard hide nor hair of the bozos. Which is two years is very notable. That is the time since Jerry Garcia has passed. Yes, and the bozos from the Europe 72 tour Mm -hmm. was one of two buses that was on that run. There was the bolos and the bozos. And the bozos were a group that were, you know, it was one bus versus the other. And people would jump from one bus to the other. They would leave their bolo group and go to the bozos and the bozos were kind of like a a fun goofy name that they kind of gave themselves and it was that inner sanctum of you know real freaks that were into the dead and into the scene and for two long years no one has seen the bozos and i kind of like i I right away knew what he was talking about and i'm like this is him passing us the torch. Yeah, is, yeah. And he says, but what we heard is they were going to make it here to the fish concert. And he goes yeah. into this little rap and somehow the band follows right behind them and handles it perfect. And they play along and they give him this like kind of musical uh, safety net mm-hmm. to tell his story. And the story ends up becoming kind of like a hybrid of a Wizard of Oz type thing. A bunch of the pranksters come out, George Walker, Babs, they all yeah. come out, Frankenstein and the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion. It was a freak show. And it just builds into this weirdness. And, and I mean, it was like a long thing yeah. that was going on. Yeah, almost and felt a little too long. A little, a little too long. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. But also it's like, and I think that I would, I would love to one day talk to the guys in Fish about like how they felt about absolutely, all that. Because yeah. it seemed to me like, I mean, they were almost like, what the fuck did we do? Yep, absolutely. So at the end, yeah. Trey's like, see what you happens gotta, when you take too much acid absolutely. 30 years He's, later? He kind of like, you know, ushers them off a little bit. He's like, yeah. yeah but, yep. And there but, were yeah. like interpretive dancers on stage. Yeah. And now there were a couple very important moments throughout like what Keezy was talking about because he said like, if there's one thing that you know is true is there's always room on the bus for you. And he keeps kind of like rapping as he goes off stage. 
and he's chanting bozo and everyone's kind of and then these big clowns came out of the crowd yeah. these giant fucking clowns came out of the crowd and went up on stage and it was like whoa like this didn't just happen <laughs> and then he starts talking about a mockingbird mm-hmm. And that's what normally goes into, you know, or, you know, that's, that comes after Forbin's the narration. Comes, it's, right. it's Colonel Forbin, uh, Mockingbird. Yeah. But the band decides to throw everyone a knuckleball and says, you know, the funk's too deep. We can't mm-hmm. stop. It yep. goes into Camel Walk, which yep. is the one it's and only time exploded. Yeah. that they've done that. Yep. Keezy walks off stage. I'm like floored. You know, some people were like, that was stupid. That was weird. Yeah. I'm going to go get it, a beer. It definitely got mixed reactions from a lot sure. of people. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And for me, it was just kind of like, I can't believe that the... The Grateful Dead's the guy that got the dead started mm-hmm. is here at my thing, and he's telling all of us like I accept you guys as the next round yeah. of, of heads. Yeah. And to me, that was a huge There's moment. A deeper significance too. Yeah, uh, to, totally. Yeah. So put his card in my wallet, went off to college, and I reached out to him. I, I went to college and I, I did uh, creative writing, and I started to email him some of my writing. I just took a shot in the dark one night, drunk. We had one computer in my apartment. Netscape Navigator dial-up yep. shit. And, you know, you, to take sometimes to send one email, it took, like, 45 minutes. I wrote him this, like, stupid, drunk email that said, like, show me the way, chief. I attached some writing that I wrote. I was like, we met at Fish. I'm a, I'm a writer. And I, you know, I, the Beats and the, you know, Kerouac and blabbing a whole bunch of fucking garbage. And I attached a thing I wrote. And he read it. He wrote back and he said... Uh, you've got a lot of beat in your writing. Read more Burroughs. Wow. Read more Thoreau, the writer's writers. Mm-hmm. And, I, and then he drew a little further bus in dashes on the bottom of the email with K, You're K in the middle. getting constructive criticism. I'm getting PC. guidance from the guy who wrote <laughs> the greatest you know, book that I ever read. And I'm like, holy shit, this is crazy. Somebody else probably. He's, I'm like, this dude's famous. He's got a team of people. Somebody fucking wrote this and whatever. And uh, time goes by. And I'm writing and I'm reading and I'm learning and whatever. My senior year comes along and I wanted to do a project for my thesis about people who choose to live off the beaten path for music. And I got my college to foot the bill for two Phil and Friends shows and two Trey shows. All in New Jersey. So there was a weird pocket where Trey and Phil did reverse runs where East Center... And Camden, Homedale and Camden, Homedale and Camden. So I was able to camp in the middle at Cheesequake State Park and then go to these four, three or four shows and then interview fans that were at the shows. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do this thing about even all the way back then. Why were people chasing and shot in the dark? I'm going to email Keezy seeing that he kind of got this whole thing started. I want to know what his thoughts are on this thinking he would never in a million years write back. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, I'm doing this project. You may remember me. I always feel forget forgotten. Yeah, so I kind of yeah. need to like, I don't know if you remember me, sure. but I bothered you two years ago. And uh, I said, I'd love to interview you for this project. And like two hours later, three hours later, there's an email with his address, his phone number. Let me know when you're coming. And I'm like, Wait, what? Like, I thought he was just going to be like, yeah, email me some questions yeah. and, you know, someone, one of my people. Let me know when you're coming. Let me know when you're coming. So I called the phone number. Now, I called the phone number a couple times all the way to, like, the last digit and then hung up because okay. I was like, how do I talk to yeah. Ken Kesey on the phone? So I get a little bit of beer confidence in me and I call Kesey and uh, he picks up and I'm like, Mr. Kesey? And he's like, call me Ken, like, right off the bat. And he's kind of quiet. 
And I'm like, uh, this is Mike. I emailed you um, about that college paper that I'm writing, and I wanted to interview you. And he's like, where are you? And I'm like, I'm in Connecticut. And he's like, well, that's far. And I'm like, yeah. I go, but I'd be happy to come out. And uh, he goes, okay, well, just, you know, let me know when you land and let me know. He goes, you could stay here with me. No questions. Wow. No question. Wow. I mean, you know what I probably could have said? Yeah. Why don't I just email you the questions? Yep. But that wasn't even in my thought process. Yeah. It was like, this is him. I'm just going to do what he you tells offered, me. You were offered. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you, I mean, you were offered so much more than that. Right. I mean, yeah. You, you would have been a fool. And it kind of yeah. taught me right away then at that point, too, in my life where it's like, yeah, just be open to yeah. the experiences yeah. instead of questioning how you do things. Yeah. So I jump up and down. I hang up the phone. I call my buddies. I got plastered. I was like, I'm going to <laughs> Oregon to interview Kesey. And a lot of people were like, why? Wow. Like, who... Who cares? Like, I don't know. Some people yeah, just yeah, weren't like that, that, like jazzed about it. Yeah. But I was like, holy shit. And my roommates. They're not be- into my- psychedelic heroes. I yeah. Mean. <laughs> and my best buddies were like, wow, this is wild. Yep. So I booked a flight and I wrote a million questions and I studied the Grateful Dead and I had all these ideas and I went to the concerts and interviewed people about why they went to see the dead all these years and why people go to see Trey and Fish and got to meet a lot of real cool people. And I told them. I'm going to interview Keezy. I'm going to, and they're like, oh, tell him that Rabbit says what's up, man. Like, we <laughs> hung together at Watkins, you know, whatever, yeah, some crazy yeah. shit. Greek theater, and I'm like, sure. And uh, the night before I was leaving, I was getting so nervous. And I said to a friend of mine, I go, uh, do you want to go? And he was like the one kind of like more intrepid one out of my friends. And he goes, my mom's in Alaska this summer. So yeah, I'll go, I'll, I'll be a day behind you. And I'll come out, and I'll stay for a day or two, yeah. and then I'll head to Alaska. So you got a wingman. So I had a buddy that yep. was, you know, I go out that night, and I get ripped right before I was leaving. My girlfriend at the time, uh, like, no shows. She was supposed to drive me to the airport. So a buddy of mine who passed that on my couch gets in the car and drives me, like, 500 miles an hour to the airport in Hartford. Mm-hmm. I get to the airport. I fall asleep on the plane. Before the plane even takes off, a lady next to me drops an entire can of Coca-Cola <laughs> In my sandal, and we're flying seven hours or whatever the fuck, and I'm hungover. Now I got one sticky foot, and uh, we we land in Portland, Oregon, and I call Keezy, and I said, I'm here. I'm at the airport, and he goes, all right, I'll be there uh, shortly. Where are you? He's picking you up at the airport. Yeah, and I go, yeah, but I go, I don't know. I don't really know Portland and airport. He goes, whoa, whoa, you're in Portland? He goes, I'm in Eugene. He goes, you went to the wrong airport. He goes, so take a Greyhound bus. I'll pick you up when you get, you know, let me know when you get here. I'm like, all right. So, and you think about this now, and it's like, what the fuck? Like, everything would have been, all details would have been taken care of. But this is whatever, 2001, summer of 2001. I have a beeper. No, I have a Nokia. (laughs) I have a Nokia blue brick that you can play Snake on, Mm -hmm. you know? And it was like $500 a minute. It's my only connection to the world. Who even knows if Oregon had... Like cell coverage yeah. at that time, yeah. so I take go to a Greyhound bus station, and I take a bus down the Oregon kind of coastline yeah, there, and Coast Highway down out there, yeah. and it was cool. I just got to check it out, mm-hmm. you know. And I was on the bus with some crazies and some, you know, different looking people, yeah. and uh, and it was a long fucking ride. And I went over all the questions that I was going to ask mm-hmm. them, and I got to Eugene, and I called him. And a white pickup truck shows up with a sticker on the side that said, ban the bullet. And it turned out that his niece or his granddaughter was, had to do a project for school 
where she made stickers based on a belief that she had. And she put the Ban the Bullet sticker on his uh, car. Pickup, yeah. How apropos today. Yeah. That, that's still an issue. Yep. He's got his painter's cap on. And so he, it was him it's in the him. pickup truck. It's yeah, wow. Drives up. And, uh, you know, I'm standing there and I'm smoking a cigarette. And, and he kind of pulls up and I'm like, he goes, you Mike? And I'm like, hey, he goes, come on in. Throw your bag in the back. I threw my bag back in the pickup truck. I had no idea what to say. I mean, it's me and Ken Kesey sitting in a pickup yep. truck now. I'm 20 years old, I think. Yep. I'm like, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'm nervous as shit. Yeah. We um, go to a liquor store, and he gets a bottle of Tangeray and some tonic, and he's got a mason jar, and he sees this girl with a sleeve of tattoos, and he just, like, automatically just, like, is transfixed on her arm of tattoos. And he's like, holy shit, that's beautiful artwork, and this and that, and he, like, really gets into it. And uh, he's like, do you want anything here? And I was like, do they have beer? And he turns to me, and he goes, uh, so you're one of those cigarette-smoking, beer-drinking New Englanders? <laughs> and I, he had you pegged. And I go, uh, yeah. And he goes, all right. He goes, we have to go to the grocery store anyway. Mm-hmm. I'll show you some of the local beers. Uh-huh. And I'm like, fantastic. So we go to the grocery store, and we went for a full-fledged shop up and down every aisle. Now I'm you know, grocery shopping with the man, yeah. and we're getting steaks and fish and fresh vegetables and fruit and you know he's like do you want anything for breakfast and do you like you know how we long are you planning to stay with him at this point it was like a four to five day okay. stay yeah what is it like five days four nights yeah. something like that because i flew back on a red eye um and so you so you're getting provisions for this day for the stay yeah. i don't know where we're staying yeah. i don't know anything about anything yet i got a backpack with some t-shirts and shows me all these beers these local like moose drool mm-hmm. and a couple of like pacific northwest beers we grabbed some stouts, some pale ales, whatever, and we, uh, you know, I was like, can I offer some money? And he's like, no, no, and he pays for everything. Tripped out a little while in the, in the cereal aisle. Like, when we went by, like, a lot of colors, yeah. it was just like with the girl's arm, uh-huh. he kind of would get, like, kind of sidetracked a little bit, <laughs> which, you know, maybe that's too much acid 30 years later. Well, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, absolutely. So I kind of felt right away I needed to sort of validate myself mm. and my stay and, like, my purpose yeah. and I kind of kept like right away going into stories about like my dad's records and how like I you know was listening to music at an early age and I've been fish and how I found them and kind of all of all the past chapters in this project I kind of t- was telling him and asked you know I didn't ask him any questions yet but and I kind of was like well whenever you're ready to get going you know so on so we get to his uh, house amazing little like farmhouse like like i didn't know what to expect but i definitely didn't expect this this it was like a like a really little passed down from generations i think farmhouse that was open kind of floor plan there was a stairway that went very modest very humble uh there was a stairway that went up to like uh, a little attic workspace there was rooms full of posters from you know can you pass the acid test and it's amazing looking at someone's like hoarderism yeah when they had that past yeah like i was walking into like everything in his house was like day glow orange he had tie-dye dipped um lampshades uh big speaker cabinets that were tie-dye dipped and then you look at like the wall and it's him on top of the pyramids with a Grateful Dead shirt, and he's putting a flag oh, at the yeah, tip that, of the that's pyramid. That's an iconic picture. Yeah, right. absolutely. There's a picture of him and Bill Walton wow. at, like, the Greek. It's almost like t- what you would expect in yeah. you know, a stereotypical kind of funny way. But, yeah, that, like, that, that, that artist, author, 
that's yes. you know like it's his place is so humble and modest. Yep, stacks of books everywhere. I'm assuming as well. I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah. and I, and I don't newspapers. Yeah. Um, he's got this little dog Happy that's running around, and Happy was kick ass. And uh, we were playing with the pup out in his backyard, enormous yard. He had a bunch of peacocks. He had llama. He had a bunch of like crazy animals running around that like it made no sense to me. But and he goes, "This is the room you're going to be staying in." And I look in the room, and the bed is like tacked to the wall, and it's lips. And the bed is inside the mouth. So I basically have to kind of like crawl into this like wooden oh. mouth to sleep. Yeah. And it was, there were spiders. Uh, there was one or two spiders in there and it, I couldn't sleep the whole time. But, uh, <laughs> are you taking pictures or anything? How yeah, I have a couple yeah, pictures. Yeah, yeah. Um, I meet his wife, Faye. Okay. And uh, she was yeah, super just kind. them two there? Just them two yeah. there. But the family's around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Babses live a ta- like, you know, a little like kind of one off shoot away. And there's, his son Zane and Ken Babs' son Simon, and there's all these kind of like you know people, mm-hmm. like you know uh, other prankster kind of offshoot that are hanging around, showing up. This woman who I, I don't know who she was, but she was hanging out, and then um, yeah, there was like his grandkids. Mm-hmm. So it was very kind of like free flowing, and there was never this like okay, let's talk. Yeah, yep. He starts cooking, and we start drinking some beers. And uh, he's drinking Tangeray. Out of nowhere, he just starts telling me these stories about the 60s and about the CIA, LSD experiments and so on and so forth. And he starts getting into, like, really deep shit. Mm -hmm. And uh, he goes, do you have your tape recorder going? And I'm like, no. And he goes, well, this is some pretty good stuff. You might want to (laughs) go. So I go running into the bedroom, and I grab my tape recorder. Now, this is how novice of a... He's the first person I've ever interviewed in my entire life. And I have a little Sony micro cassette recorder, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to record him. It sounds terrible. Here's, here's some of the interview right now. I've been turned on its ear by uh, musicians of that time. And it's like ragtime. When ragtime happened, there was a... Uh, a door open that'll never be closed. Uh, that's really the kind of the beginning of uh, jazz. And once it had occurred, you just have to, from now on, figure it into the equation of whatever, whether you're listening to uh, classical music or uh, jazz or bebop or rock or Whatever it is, it has uh, a bit of that ragtime piano. We used to go to uh, the block, I mean, the uh, jazz places up in San Francisco, and see Coltrane, Miles Davis, Harold Garner, uh, Sarah Vaughan, and all those people. And they were all right, you guys. Um, all those people were downers. You know, you you went to those rock and roll shows, and you sat there with uh, a frown on your face, nodding your head, uh, following the uh, downers on uh, Smack, most of them. And singing uh, really good stuff about bad things that had happened. 
I remember when I first heard uh, Billy Holiday sang uh, Strange Fruit. Have you ever heard that song? Yeah. Yep. God damn, what a song. Such a horrendous, powerful song. But as a philosophy, it's nothing you want to be left with. Uh, it's, it's great that she did it and somebody had to do it. Um, but I wouldn't have wanted to have been that person. I, I wanted to be singing the next uh, song. Uh, most of the people that I knew that came all up through Stanford, uh, they were all very comfortable with jazz. All the grad students. They had figured it out. It's going to be a thing. Ever so often, you go up to San Francisco and listen to some guy stoned to the kills playing uh, slow music, people listening and nodding, and sometimes it'd get a little faster. Um, I care I captured that real well and on the road. Very much. About on the, uh, <laughs> the clubs up and down the street. Oh, very much. Yeah, it's a great feeling going up and down. Listen, watching Cassidy listen to these guys listening to Bob uh, Shearer. Um, and with the uh, introduction of the Beatles and that uh, whole new feeling, that really emerging feeling of rock and roll. And it's first times in the 60s. Uh, it was uh, exciting and uh, thrilling, but very few people thought it was important musically because too many kids screaming. We took the bus once to see the Beatles in uh, Cow Palace, I think 1965. It, and uh, it was it was scary. It was so powerful. It was it was scary to us. It was scary to the people that were putting it on. It was very scary to the uh, Beatles. The only people that weren't scared was the audience. <laughs> Every time they would start singing, the uh, audience would press toward them, and the people down close to the stage. We were up in. Uh, second level there, so we could watch this. And they uh, would try to stop the singing and tell people to uh, uh, please to back up and quit pressing forward. And uh, everybody would be quiet. And as soon as they would start singing, there would be just screams and people would be up out of their seats and pressing toward them. And I think the same thing happened the Rolling Stones and the Who and the Dead were on the bus with us when we went up there to this thing. To the Beatles? Yeah. And they uh, saw it too and very affected by it. Everybody was. And it meant to the dead to avoid that. Uh, to get into a situation where you were in contact with people and they were in contact with you and you were singing back and forth with each other, uh, doing uh, 
contrapuntal between the audience and, and the uh, dead on stage. Uh, and so when something happened, uh, instead of the dead not looking at it, they would turn to it and begin to play to it. So there, at a point there was never any threat from the audience. You know, you never saw the dead under any kind of huge pressing forward threat, although they had as big an audience as, and as uh, devoted yeah. an audience. They just didn't come in and sing, she's got a ticket to ride, and end it. Uh, they, they came in and sung their pieces, and then when they went into their their solos and jazz pieces that they put in the midst of their rock and roll pieces, they were really alert to the audience, playing out there, watching the audience. <laughs> and these these films that we have of uh, Garcia when he's playing in the uh, 1972 and 82 um, scene in 1972 you can see him watching the audience and, and he's not paying attention to his hand or the tune he's, he's watching the audience and doing the best he can with uh, what he's, he's got to work with there and, and the audience becomes his music and you, I've seen him turn, pick out a uh, a person in the audience. It's out of hand, and or maybe uh, just dancing. And Garcia will play to the person dancing. He won't play music and have the person dance to it. He will watch the person and and play the dance that the person is dancing. And you know, this is nothing that ever happened in jazz or in classical music. This is completely uh, personal to rock and roll and uh, especially to the great dead. The Beatles never did get so they could do it. They backed right off of playing live. Poor old sheriff fell out of somebody's moving. The dead were more spontaneous than... Yeah. When uh, you see the Rolling Stones, they have learned how to do it with lots of effects and stuff that spreads from one side of the uh, stadium to the other side of the stadium and stuff that goes up very high and and then large, large pictures of them. So you don't have to press close to see them. You can stay way back and often see them better than if you press up there close. Plus make Jagger jump around stage. Yeah, and then he runs from not just on stage, but they had these walkways that run all the way out to the uh, edge of the stage area and clear up into the audience, and then comes back and runs all the way to the other side, jumping and twisting and carrying on. What, what do you think the dead spontaneity did for bands that try to follow in their steps now? Try to follow what? They try to follow basically in their not like in their shadow but that follow them along the lines of like improvisational music oh I think a lot of people do it continually now they uh, they have groups get together and they play a song and then in the midst of the song they uh, it's not like a, a jazz break 
It's like them finding themselves. Uh, they've earned their space. They know that people are going to listen to them and they can really get out there and experiment. Just about every, all the groups that I listen to now have this quality. Unless they're a real old kind of Roy Orbison group that plays the same stuff and just gets it better and better each time. You can go to a dead concert and be there five or six hours waiting and doing stuff and listening to music just for this one moment when it happens when whatever it is happens and everybody knows it happens the dead knows it happens and cops that have never heard of the dead they can feel it happen he called it a night uh, my buddy shows up which was great the next day yeah. we ended up bringing some like weed with us mm-hmm. on the plane and I asked Keezy I was like would you like to smoke and he's like yeah and we smoke and I'm high as fuck and he goes uh you know, I'm not really feeling this. Do you mind if we smoke some of mine? And he opens up a drawer and, like, green angels come flying out. And, like, we smoke some of that. And now I'm completely gone. And he goes, all right, we've got work to do. So we went to this tiny little office that he had in Oregon. And it was, like, in, right in, in the Eugene area. And him and Babs were working on the videos for a project called the Ken Kesey and his Band of Merry Pranksters in Search of a Cool Place. And it was them splicing video together of the original bus trip that was heading east so Keezy could uh, sign his papers for the publication for Sometimes a Great Notion. Oh, wow. So that was the original bus trip. Yeah. And that was the thing that they kind of documented in the acid test mm-hmm. and whatever. But they were trying to put it all together in this video format. And I was helping them dip, tie-dye dip the, the VHS boxes and I was doing, like, cutting stickers and putting them on the boxes and stuff. And the guys were telling me stories. And they were kind of breaking my balls, but, like, in a loving brotherly kind yeah, of way. But yeah. it was like, well, you know, if you didn't know and you're not there, and it's why would you be here? And if it, and they were talking in, like, prankster folly in a little bit. And I was just like, right, what the fuck is going on here, you know? So Keezy and I take off, and we start driving around. And we start to – he starts to tell me a little bit about, like, the past and Oregon and, uh, you know, this place that's now uh, Burger King used to be his old elementary school. And this logging to part over here that's now a car, you know, car dealership used to be um, where his dad worked. And, you know, they're, they're, they, they, he just showed me all like old Eugene. Yeah. And I'm doing this like interview in a pickup truck and he's eating peanuts the whole time and the window's down. So I'm dodging peanuts, wet fucking peanut shells and and i can't hear a thing because he's got the windows open but it was like still magical fucking yeah what am i supposed to you know so i'm kind of almost sitting like in the middle near him so i can like record and he's telling me all these great stories about garcia and he's told me about how uh jerry was scared to die in his sleep so he would sleep sitting up reading it turns out garcia died in his sleep which was very weird but he would sit up and read and then wake up and just start talking all day about the shit that he read last night, which is pretty wild. He told some incredible stories about, um, well, here's, here's one about a trip that he took with uh, Cassidy to a uh, Jefferson Airplane concert. We were up one time in, uh, in Bellingham, Washington. And we'd gone up there to do some reading. Got up with the bus. Ginsburg was along. Uh, 
Cassidy was driving. Hell of a scene. We drove up there and it's I got there about Tuesday, I guess, and I had to teach classes until uh, Saturday night when uh, everything began to come uh, in from everywhere. And Jefferson Airplane was the big time lead band. This was 19, let's say, 68, maybe 67. And the bus was um, parked out there full of people and they were just having a wonderful time. They didn't have to get up and do anything. And Cassie was just having the greatest time of his life. And finally, we decided Saturday, the uh, Jefferson Airplane is coming. We better take some acid. And we all took a good jolt of acid. And we wandered into the gymnasium where it was supposed to take place. Got off the bus and the world was tipping and uh, all the semen slabs were going like this. We went dragging, stumbling in there. Uh, finally, it was one of these uh, gymnasiums in which there's an outside ring where they have the popcorn for sale and uh, the, uh, all the other little things that happen outside. And then you go through the doors on an inside where the ball games play. We got to that outside arena. We just couldn't figure out where we were, what was happening. And finally, all just kind of collapsed there on the floor. And we're sitting in the, um, a great segment there. And finally the door opened up and here came uh, a guy who, was, uh, who at that time was uh, the lead roadie for the dead. Can't remember his name. He was a good old friend. He came swirling in there and he saw us sitting on the floor. We all looked up at him like this and he says, Ah! Oh, <laughs> and uh, we nodded at him. So finally, um, they drug us on in and made us a place where we can kind of pile up there on the floor in front of the first seats. And it was completely crowded and they had all the lights on and wonderful scene. Cassie looked out down that audience. Man, there's this audience. He says, all I need is a little elucidation. And he he began to, he had on a, uh, a day glow uh, driver's uh, uh, vest. That was all he had for the waist up. Uh, I never saw him. He'd bend the uh, top of it down. I'd put it back up. And he just was twisted around. He just was having the best time. He played that audience for 20 minutes, and uh, he would look at them, and he would dance to them, and he, he couldn't be heard. It's uh, noisy in there. Finally, uh,
the uh, airplane came out and the audience quieted down enough that they were able to turn on the uh, turn off the lights and get going and they played their first song was uh, You Need Somebody to Love and man everything just began to happen all of these uh, people all these unanswered questions about what was going to happen they changed and uh, everything was different it's wonderful thing just absolutely wonderful thing and it was spreading out from there I could feel this is where it starts this is where the uh, actual millennium begins from here on out it will just go from uh, one bunch of people to the next bunch of people and it will continue to expand and it will all be understood in history people will look back at it and, and all of them agree yeah this is uh, where it happened this was the beginning of it and uh When the end of that first song, Marty Ballard, he uh, hollered over the guy that was running the soundboard, and he says, uh, "Hey, next time you uh, uh, start fiddling with those dials, he says, uh, wait till we kind of give you the uh, say so." He says, "And bring this up and that up," and, and his voice sounded was just so harsh and strange. And all I could think of was, wait now. I mean, this is about to, everything is about to go good on Earth for a thousand years. And you're arguing with this little guy about a microphone. And so uh, I sat there and they sung another piece. I just uh, couldn't get this off my mind. And when they stopped the second piece, I said, because the edge of the stage was so closer my here to the corner. I said, hey, Marty, you ought to apologize for that guy, to that guy back there. We're getting on his uh, case so bad. Suddenly, Cassidy was all over me, whamming me, whomp, whomp, whomp. And uh, I uh, tripped out, and suddenly I wasn't there anymore. I was up on top of... Uh, hill outside of Babs place in La Honda. The thing that happened after one of the uh, acid tests, after the, the big acid test finale in uh, and where was it? Oh, it was the big acid test graduation. And I go through a real tough scene with that thing. And uh, had just barely escaped with my brain. And uh, Is that the one that Garcia kind of lost a little bit with the the trees, the Indian spirits. Is that, that one? Yeah. He ended up underneath a table. 
This was the one where I told everybody that uh, we had to stop taking acid because I've been surrounded by reporters and cops and everything. I didn't think anybody would believe me. And then besides the hell of angels and I coming around sticking stuff in my mouth and I ripped it from the top. And uh, finally, we had a uh, big get together and, and sort of worked it out there on uh, everybody got out and sat down and we're uh, going to work this thing out and so we did we got it out there and and talked through it and there was this one little guy just an amazing little guy very high looked about 18 and nobody ever seen him before or since and I would talk and he would make these little poetic statements at the end of each uh, thing that I'd say when the guy was good and uh, he was way out beyond himself I doubt he remembers it I'll, I'll never forget it but anyway he finally got up and Babs took me back and he put me in this suit of clothes that he had for me because I was in bad shape, and he straightened me up and put me in this uh, suit. Uh, it was a thing that Gretsch had made him, really sharp-looking green and orange outfit, and, and he showed me how to tuck the shirt in for uh, as a Marine and how to tag it around like that so he looked right straight up and down. And he says, now walk back out there, and I walked back out there, man, I looked good and felt good. <laughs> and... It was, uh, uh, I can remember driving home when we finally uh, got everything packed up. It was a nice, sunny Monday morning, or Sunday morning, I guess, be in uh, San Francisco, getting stuff together there and, and driving home. And uh, at one point, I began to talk again, and my mind began to ravel, and George says, there's a sign up there that says, wrong way, go back. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so we got on back to Babs's, and I couldn't sleep when I got up and headed up above Babs's into the hills above Santa Cruz, because he lived right on the edge of the hills, and pretty soon, I mean, as I headed out, his two big old hound dogs, Curly and Joe, or something like that. It wasn't Joe, though. It was something else. Um, they went up in the hills with me, and we walked and walked, and I was finally beginning to come down. And I hadn't said anything, went up there and uh, laid down, and looked down at Babs's house, and it's about that big down there. And I can see Zane, who was probably seven. Uh, he came out earlier than anybody else. He was up early, and he went out to... Uh, Babs's rabbit cage, and he crawled up on the top of the rabbit cage, and I was fiddling with the rabbits up there, and I was just so pleased to be there, and these dogs on each side of me, so mellow and nice, and I thought I'd holler at him, and he went, came out of me. These two dogs looked at me like this, and they were pounding with their feet like this, and they're pounding with my, their feet, and suddenly it's Cassidy pounding me with his hand, and I'm back at this... Uh, uh, Jefferson Airplane concert and 
I realized that uh, I've been through this uh, um, trip that I something has taken me through and shown me that hey, uh, you don't want to make these noises at this time. You want to uh, keep quiet, and and I did quieted down, and uh, we sat there and watched the rest of the, the uh, concert. And it became a really great concert, but it no longer had the chance of being the greatest concert in the history of the world. It was there. It had the door open for a second, and things just got a little messy right there. And so we went ahead and watched the concert, and then we were able to get out there on the bus and pack up and tell everybody goodbye and head it off. And we're Casty is all the rest of us have kind of come down. Casty, he just kept going up, man. He's taking everything and he's up there flying off wheel and he's talking and he's coming on and he's jigging on along like this and Ramrod was sitting there beside him listening, uh huh, Neil, uh huh. And we were about this was uh it was at Bellhaven and we were driving from Bellhaven to uh Seattle, where we were going to meet the Dalai Lama. This is why Ginsburg was with us. He was going to go up there and meet the Dalai Lama and try to talk the Dalai Lama into coming down to the farm. It was the Dalai Lama's first trip in the United States. And as we're driving along there, I get to look at Cassidy. My God, he had a a lump on his elbow. It's like somebody had opened his skin and put a softball under the skin right here on his elbow. I said, God, Neil, what's that? He said, oh, I don't know. I said, it's, uh, it's something here. I'm, I'm trying to get it down. He's pounding it. I said, good Christ. I said, do you just find a hospital? So we pulled over and called and made an appointment at the hospital. He was beginning to get a little scared, but he kept driving. And uh, we uh, finally drove up to a hospital in Ginsburg and I, I think Mike Hagan took him into the hospital. And he was just high as shit, boy. And uh, this doctor came in, and it's about four in the morning, let's say. And the doctor came in and says, "Well, what's your problem?" She says, "Amphetamine, you're on amphetamine twice a day, every day since 1946. I'd like some right now, yeah." <laughs> I begin to look at Cassie and he looks at us and he's like, holy shit, <laughs> I've got a bunch of crazy ones. So he gave Neil something to calm him down and told him to uh, uh, keep his arm against himself. And uh, when he got to Seattle, go see this other doctor who was better at it. And so we got back in the bus and headed on out. And these two girls are with us, Gas Girl and Patty Cake. Gas Girl... There's a girl that had been fat all her life, and she still is. She's absolutely round, uh, fat, very smart, funny girl. And, and Patty Cake is uh, her old high school friend. And they're, uh, uh, they're back there, and they put on nurses' helmets, and they begin to take care of it back there. Man, he is just giggling and coming on and having such a good time back there. And you can hear him says, oh, that's what I need is more therapy. What? <laughs> that's a, what? And he, then he'd begin to laugh, and he would laugh. He'd laugh and pretty soon he's just talking and laughing and gibbering. And we drove on in and 
went down to um, Seattle's the fish market where the uh, apartment was where the Dalai Lama was supposed to be met. And we joggled around out there and parked. And uh, Ginsburg went upstairs to get the Dalai Lama. And we were, all of us, just completely shot. And Ginsburg had been gone about uh, 20 minutes. All of a sudden, there was this burst of giggling. And out up the main aisle, here came Cassidy, right out on the streets of Seattle. He was not only nude, he had shaved every hair on his body. He had not one hair on his body because Ann Murphy had uh, come up with crabs and he'd had to shave himself completely. His tops, his hair, his tops of his toes, everything was completely shaved. <laughs> At this point, the Dalai Lama and Ginsburg show up on the top of the steps and we're out there trying to run Cassidy down. He's <laughs> zooming back and forth. And all of these uh, people at the fish markets, it's a big, crowded, touristy place. <laughs> they were... They were in, they'd been watching the bus, and there's this guy came out that was a completely hairless man. <laughs> we ran him down and finally corralled him back in there, and Dalai Lama decided he would go back upstairs. <laughs> and he didn't want to come down to... Uh, never got to visit the farm. He never got to visit the farm, and I always uh, felt bad about it. <laughs> it was a real loss for the Dalai Lama. Whoa. So that's, yeah, him tripping out and, uh, you know, really learning not to try to control the moment and just let the acid do it. So I'm a little bit bugged out. I'm like, wow, this is wild. Mm -hmm. And uh, tells me a a story about um, his son that uh, passed away who was a wrestler. Mm -hmm. And uh, they uh, they were on their way up to a wrestling match at Washington State University. And the truck that they were driving in went off a cliff and his son died. And uh, next time the dead came through town, they played Broke Down Palace as the encore. And, like, they shined a light on Keezy's, like, family that was sitting in the crowd. And a lot of beautiful stuff. Yeah, emotional moment, I'm sure. Yeah. So it was a long trip. Yeah. Long, strange trip. Yeah. And uh, at one point during the trip, we were sitting in his house, and he got a call from Mountain Girl. And she said, we have a ticket waiting for you for String Cheese Incident at Hoarding's Hideout. If you'd like to come up, we're all here. Barlow's here. I'm here. Your son's. And he's like, I'm not feeling it, but I'm going to send my guy up. So he throws me the keys to his pickup truck. He tells me where to meet his son. And I met me and my buddy, Randy, met his son and Bab's son. And we caravaned up to Horning's Hideout and went to the 2001 String Cheese at Horning's Hideout thing. Horning's Hideout, Mm -hmm. one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my life. I wasn't a big String Cheese fan at the time, but it was perfect music for the perfect setting and under a canopy of redwoods and fucking stars and the light show that they put on and all the theatrics. And it was just amazing. And we were in this like far corner, like Forest Grove, Mm -hmm. Oregon, near Washington. And um, just a wild experience. And I I mean, I can't believe not only did he open, you know, his home to you, but I mean, he's giving you his car to use. Yeah. I mean, buying me food. Yeah. The whole thing. We watched Jaws and went line for line because it's like my favorite movie since I was a kid. Yep. And like, I think that kind of broke the ice a little too. Yeah. We we right away hit it off, but it was also like I was really I was really trying to impress him. Yeah. Uh, But I also think he was just like relax like mm-hmm. i'm not someone that you need to impress yeah. i yeah. feel yeah but fast forward a little bit to uh the end of the trip he he says you should probably come back 
in the fall, it's nice here. He goes, it's, it's a really beautiful part of the country in the fall. And we went out to dinner, and we had a couple drinks, and he dropped me off at the bus station, and we hugged, and he gave me a whole bunch of stuff to go home with. He signed all the copies of his books, which I still have. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hit the road back to the airport. I s- kind of just tried to collect all my thoughts and whatever, and I was stinky and smelly and ratty. And I uh, get on the plane, and I fly home, and I've got these tapes. And I just put them away for a little bit and was just like a changed person, yeah. you know? And uh, 9-11 happens not long after. Mm-hmm. I was out there in August, and September 11th happened, you know, less than a month later. Kesey wrote a thing for Rolling Stone magazine about it. And then in November, he dies. I kind of... So I got, that had to be one of the last interviews he's given. There, it's, it's, the, it's the last or... Someone, I believe, from AARP yeah. talked to him about, like, growing old gracefully or whatever. And uh, But I think that my thing with him was, you know, one of the last, if not the last. Yeah. And uh, I got in touch with um, Ken Babs, and he said, you know, do the right thing with this. So I went to my, my college uh, advisor, and she was like, I don't really... She was an amazing woman, but she was like, there's a couple other teachers in our department that are agents that you might be able to talk to, and they might be able to help you. And there was this one woman who knew people in New York. She called them. She said, this guy's got Kesey's final interview, and he's a student, and a you know, good student, blah, blah, blah. I went down to New York to meet with these people, and they just wanted to buy the interview but not give me any writing job or credit. Okay. They just wanted to be able to cut it and snip it, and, and I just didn't feel good in my gut doing yeah. that. I could have used the money, sure, but I... Definitely think it would have been do, the wrong thing. Yeah, to you don't do. know what they're going to do with it, and, and it was so just, personal. Yeah, and it was like, true. well, wait a minute, this is my interview. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're part of the story. I'm down here. Story. Yeah, so I said no to everybody, and I'm down here in New York, and I got, I got long, long hair and a beard and my long sleeve Grateful Dead T-shirt on, and I go to the ear, this bar in the West Village, yeah, the ear in, yeah, the ear in, yeah. and I get plastered, and I walk over to Varick and Houston. Mm-hmm to Relix's office. And I walk in, and I asked for the editor, and I said, you don't know me, but I have Ken Kesey's interview here. He just died. I'm not a, like, I'm a college kid. I don't want a lot of money. I want a job writing for you. Here's the transcript. It was all, I sat in the basement of Eastern Connecticut yeah, State University yeah. Library listening to those tapes, mm-hmm. writing it out. And I had Lyme disease at the time, too. Oh, damn. So I was sitting there doing all that, sick as a dog. I get better. I go to the, whatever, New York. I hand it to her. And she goes, well, can you write? And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, let me show you. And that night, Phil and Bob had a show at the Beacon, like a benefit for 9-11. They provided me a ticket. Mm-hmm. And I went to it, and I reviewed the show. And I got back on the train back to Connecticut mm-hmm. to go home. And I wrote my review. I got to Connecticut. I emailed it to them. Woke up the next day. Looked on Relics' website. And there was my review. Oh, that had Phil and cool. Bobby yeah. ripped the beacon for 9-11 benefit. Yep. And it was right there. And I was like, wow. And then I checked my email and there's an email from them saying, come back down. We need to talk, mm-hmm. you know, and figure out what to do. And they gave me a tiny bit of money for the thing, but they let me work for them. Yeah. And I got to go to a million shows and I kind of took that uh, badge of honor as like, I get to go to concerts and review and interview bands yeah. and dream job. For I kind of went rogue. Oh like, yeah. I, I, I interviewed I got 
backstage wherever I could. Mm-hmm. I went to the first Bonnaroo mm-hmm. for them. You know, got to talk to Ween and talk to, you know, I, at Toad's Place in New Haven, I interviewed, like, Damian Marley, Soul Live, Galactic, De La, like, mm-hmm. all these, like, my favorite music. Mm-hmm. And I got to hang out with all these people. And uh, Vince Welnick, I did an interview with Vince, oh, which cool. was, it was just kind of wild. And I got a chance to meet Bob Weir at the Hippodrome, I believe it was called, in Springfield, Massachusetts, or somewhere in Massachusetts mm-hmm. after a DJ Logic Bob Weir oh, wow. show. Yeah. And Logic recognized me from hanging at a Relics thing. And he was like, yo, what's up, dude? Come here. Let's go. Want to go backstage? And I'm like, yeah. So there's Bobby. And he's standing there. And he, um, I forget, he goes up to someone and he goes, anybody got a cigarette for little old me? <laughs> And he takes the cigarette and he rips the filter off and smokes it like backwards. <laughs> and I said to him, you know, I just had the opportunity to spend some time with Keezy. And it's in like, I got his attention mm-hmm. and he kind of like was fixed on me. And he was like, Weir has like a look that's like intimidating, yeah. you know? And he goes, he had it figured out. He goes, he had the chance to come and change the world and then retreat to Oregon. Mm-hmm. And he goes, Jerry always was jealous of that fact that he had his place in Oregon to go to. He's like, he had to go to heroin, you know? That was pretty wild. And then it went in the relics uh, that uh, Warren Haynes is on the cover of. I forget, it's November... Or no, February 2002. Something like that. I love the idea that this journey um, out to see uh, Ken led you to all this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It opened the door. And it all started with uh, saying yes to fish... Yeah. That's what it all was. Mm-hmm. And it was all that. You know, Black Peter's one of my favorite Grateful Dead songs because there's that line, see here how everything lead up to this day. Yeah. And it's just like any other day that's ever been. And I always think about that where um, it, it's pretty wild to be able to like look back on this thing 19 years later yeah. and see all the doors that opened, see all the paths that led you down. Yeah. yeah and like hundreds of fish shows in between. Yeah. yeah. And and it's still something that I don't really even believe that it happened. Yeah. It's such a wild, surreal... Like, I remember building up so much to that trip and then coming home and being like, I don't even really remember doing the trip. Yeah. Like, it was just such a yeah, wild... Yeah, that re-entry was weird, too. I mean, just coming out of this, this dream, almost. And it was cool because my, eight, my, my college professors, I had one semester left, and they were like, yeah, you're good. Oh, yeah. They're like, work on this. Yeah. I had to go to like class and show up when I, you know what I mean? You like, but it helped. Cool ass teachers. I mean, letting you do this with the, the, the concerts and, and yeah, and well, it was like just that. all that timing, I think kind of worked out perfect. Yeah. That's what it really ended up becoming. And it, and, it, and, it, and it's one of those things where if I didn't go see fish, mm-hmm. that never would have happened. Yep. If I didn't go to that concert, none of this. And I think Keezy gave me the confidence that, People say yes. Mm -hmm. And I don't think in my life there was any time really before that where people said yes, of course, absolutely. Or at least I wasn't open to it. I think I had my own anxieties about shit. And I think that him saying, yeah, well, just let me know when you get here was like, oh, wow, that's how life could be. You know, I, I just remember how special that was to me. And then the next time I saw Fish was here at the Garden around that New Year's run. And then the next summer, they play Terrapin Station. And that just kind of sealed the deal for me with them, where it was like, oh, yeah, this is all part of... It's just links in a chain. However everybody wants to say they're different, similar, Mm -hmm. or whatever, Keezy shows up on stage in 97. Almost a year later to the day, they play Terrapin Mm -hmm. Station. It's all they needed to do. 
And they didn't really do any dead ever since until Trey played with, the, like, they did their little yeah, guest stuff. Yeah, fairly well, yep. And, oh, yeah, and even, like, Bobby came out and did, uh, you know, West LA yeah, Fadeaway at Shoreline yeah, and, yeah. and yeah. 2000 and all that. But, I mean, they, really, for me, it was just kind of like, okay, yeah, like, this all, and, and weirdly, somehow, like, I now felt like a part of this chain yeah. that is this community, that is this link that one thing goes to the other, and who knows... Mm who listened to that interview or read that interview and maybe it changed them and whatever. And it was just something that I humbly can't believe that it happened. And I'm like, just glad that it was fish that got me to that. Yeah. yeah we've talked a lot about the gifts that kind of come with chasing these moments and what a behemoth of a gift that is that, that it and led to other gifts and, and yeah, yeah, to other experiences, to other people. That's magical. Mike. Thanks yeah. to technology yeah. is now on YouTube and yeah. everywhere else. Yeah. You can yeah. go yeah, video that, yeah. watch video of it. Mm-hmm. So technology definitely has changed the way that I've seen shows. How about you? Oh, absolutely. More and more so every day. Yeah. So uh, maybe we can discuss that in our next chapter. Let's do it. Now, please proceed to chapter six. <laughs> <laughs>